Anywhere you find tension or strain, concentrate your mind on that area and allow it to release and relax. Experience relaxation and peace. Feel harmony with your body. Feel close to yourself. Now send your loving thoughts towards yourself. Thinking, I am well, I am happy, I am peaceful. Understand the meaning of each word. Clearly and deeply, then repeat it to yourself. Self-caring, self-love is the base of your meditation practice. It is beginning of your meditation practice. Without having a solid foundation, it is very difficult to build your spiritual home. Therefore, this part, self-caring part of your meditation, Little by little, we all have to figure it out. I am well. I am happy. I am peaceful. When you make sure how you feel about yourself, about your mind, about your body, Sometimes we may all experience self-regrets, anger, hatred. We all have some kind of wounded minds. Even we are smiling. So this is the time for you to heal your wounded mind, practicing self-loving kindness. I am well. I am happy. 
I am peaceful. Now send your loving thoughts towards your family. May all of my family members be well, be happy, be peaceful. Think of them individually, by names. Start with your parents. Whether they are living this world or not, still you can practice loving-kindness towards them. My brothers and sisters, children, husband, wife, may all of them be well, be happy, be peaceful. Intention become karma or action. This loving intention turn into actions. Therefore, this loving intention is not a simple thing. It's a big practice. Sometimes you don't like some of your family members. They are difficult people, annoying, challenging. And also we are emotionally connected to them because they are my family. I cannot get rid of them. Therefore, however, we have to learn how to manage how to live with them, understand each other's differences, let them to be. If they are negative, don't take those negativities into your life. If they are angry, they are responsible for that. We all have some kind of weaknesses. That's a human nature. Understanding those things, learn how to forgive them. Forgiveness is completely letting go without reservations. May all of my family members be well, be happy, be peaceful. You are wishing them well. To be happy, they are responsible, that's their job. But when you wish them happiness, wellness and peacefulness, you are taking care of yourself. 
we all deserve peace, joy and balance. Now send your loving thoughts towards whole world. May all living beings be well, be happy, be peaceful. All beings are in fear, humans, non-humans. Some are in misery, some are sad, angry, pain. Some are dying without food, without medicine, without water. Look at our lives now. Saturday morning, we are here in this beautiful place, taking care of ourselves. We are comfortable. We have something to eat. We have a place to live. Somewhat we are safe. So learn to appreciate what you have. Then understand the pain people are going through in the world and send your loving thoughts towards them. May all living beings be well, be happy, be peaceful. Now slowly turn your attention to your breath. Every breath you take in, you take out, is taken mindfully. Focus on your natural, ordinary breaths. Don't feel you are doing a job. You're just being with yourself.
If you are distracted by a thought or a feeling or a sensation, bring your attention back gently but firmly to the spot where you experience that subtle sensation of the breath. Sometimes meditation seems to be difficult because our concentration is not well developed. To climb a mountain, we need certain physical strength. First day of climbing is difficult. When we get used to it, Climbing become easier. Same with our meditation practice. This is not one day, one morning, one evening experience. It is lifetime process. Little by little, day by day, slowly is holy. Now bring your palms together close to your heart. Equal bow, respect. Going inward, 
or surrendering our ego. Respect to yourself and others. Be humble without being a doormat. May peace be with you. May you be well. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. Please open your eyes. <clears throat> okay, now we are going to do our chanting. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa Bhagavato Arehato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddhang Saranang Gachami Dhammang Saranang Gachami Sangang Saranang Gachami Dutiyampi buddhang saranang gachami Dutiyampi dhammang saranang gachami Dutiyampi sangang saranang gachami Tatiyampi buddhang saranang gachami Tatiyampi dhammang saranang gachami Tatiyampi sangang saranang gachami Anicca vata sankara Uppadvaya dhammino Uppajitva nirujjanti Te sangvupa samusuko Sabme Santa Avera Hontu Sabme Santa Ambya Panja Hontu Sabme Santa Aniga Hontu Sambe Santa Sukiyatanang Pariharantu Mano Pumbangamadamma Mano Senta Mano Maya Manasache padutena Bhasativa karotiva Tatonang dukkha manveti Chankang vahato padang Mano pumbang Gamadamma Mano Setta Mano Maya Manasache Pasanene Bhasativa Karotiva 
ததோனங்கமன்வேதி சாயவனி We believe I wish Hey, good morning everybody so once in a while we are asking our lay members to share some experiences practicing at the blue lotus temple what they learn um how they are practicing here i think it's very important to hear from their voice um sometime myself and other monastic always giving the talks so <laughs> we need a break too <laughs> anyways today um rebecca jeso doing uh, dharma sharing i want to say a few words very rarely um i was talking about people but when i say something it is coming from my deep heart so jeso family is a big part of the blue lotus temple and especially rebecca is our vice president of the temple but she is very quiet about it uh the good thing about jeso uh, family um they all are engaged for the uh, blue lotus temple activities mark uh, avan rebecca and uh, rebecca's mother sue always every week they are working in the kitchen in the basement today they have a break too <laughs> because all the monks are traveling uh, today i am the one running the temple so anyway the best way to observe somebody's spiritual journey <coughs> i think even myself observing their daily activities i think that's the best way to measure somebody's practice how that practice going well so as a leader of the temple i am always when people come to the temple i'm traveling but when i i'm at the temple i'm always watching closely observing people their attitudes they are practice their loving kindness their spiritual journey i'm i'm a really good observer even last week somebody said your observation is so amazing about people and i said that's not enough you know i have to bring that awareness inward too so last many years i was closely observing jeso family their activities their practice at the temple it is amazing to me they are very um humble people very honest what they are doing i never heard they are complaining about things always they are trying to do whatever they can to help the temple so therefore today in front of all the members of the blue lotus temple 
I want to give my heart and credit to JSO family, especially Rebecca. You are wonderful. You did so many things for the temple. You know, we are so grateful. And the whole family, mother, Sue, where is Sue? <laughs> yeah, Sue is here. They are keep working every single week for the temple. I'm so grateful. Please welcome Rebecca. <laughs> Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay, um, good morning. So I'm super honored to be here today to, to share our story. Um, my mom is here, as Bonte said, my daughter Arwen, sitting in the back with the purple hair. Um, Mark is not here today, Mark, my husband. He, um, unfortunately, is just not feeling good today. So he's kind of disappointed that he wasn't able to come. Um, originally, when Bonte Badia asked uh, me to talk today, Mark and I were planning on talking together because we thought it would be a great opportunity to, to share our story. Um, but he just didn't really feel up to it. He felt like um, it would make him kind of too nervous and be on the spot and cause him a lot of stress. So instead, we kind of sat and wrote our story together. So I'm going to read. I, I wrote a lot more than I intended to because I really wanted to be able to honor Mark's part of this story. Um, so, and I see lots of familiar faces. So I know that there's lots of people in, in the audience who know parts or, or some people all. Jason, you maybe know way more of our story than you want to know. <laughs> um, Jason comes to our house regularly and plays games with Mark. Um, um, so here we go. Mark, my husband, by the way, is in a power wheelchair. So if you ever see a guy driving around in a power wheelchair, that's Mark. He always he always uh, goes places and then says to me, gosh, they remembered me, Rebecca. Can you believe that person remembered me? I'm like, everyone remembers you. Like, you're like the only dude in town in this cool big power wheelchair. <laughs> so everyone knows who you are, uh, whether you want that or not. Okay, so here goes. So um, So Mark and I first met 22 years ago in 1999. In fact, next week is exactly 22 years since we met on October 11th. Um, we lived in Las Vegas at the time. We met at work. Uh, we got married, had our daughter Arwen 17 years ago, and we moved to Crystal Lake in 2008. In January 2013 is when we started coming to the temple. Uh, we met Bikuni Wimala first and right away felt amazingly at home. We just found that it was really easy to embrace a Buddhist philosophy because it was already really close to our personal belief systems and our lifestyle choices. So we just made it a home, and we are here a lot, and it's really important to our lives, so we give a lot back. Um, life was really good to us. We were blessed. We were happy. And although our life today is really different, we still feel really blessed and happy because of our practice. We feel like... Through all of the challenges that we've been through, we still find a way to have joy in our life, to let it live amongst all the other things that we deal with. I struggled a little bit trying to figure out how much to tell of Mark's story, because um, it's a long story and it's really complicated. So um, I settled on just giving a, a, a brief history. So for those of you who don't know, can kind of understand where we're coming from. So in January 2015, Mark experienced his first weird sensations in his body. He started having nerve tingling in his feet and legs. Um, he started having weakness when he was walking upstairs. And because he's a lifelong runner, um, at that time he was running about 25 to 30 miles a week, he's really in tune with his body. He was really aware that something was going on that didn't feel right. And for three years... So 2015, 2016, 2017, for three long years, we did everything we could to find out what was going on with Mark. He saw seven neurologists, a Chinese medicine specialist did weekly acupuncture and body manipulation for 16 months. He saw a naturopath, an osteopath, a homeopath. He went through three rounds of physical therapy. We sought out experts at Rush Medical Center and the main Northwestern campus downtown in Chicago. He took tons of medication and tons of supplements, and lots of them gave him horrible side effects. Um, he started using walking sticks, and when that didn't work anymore, he rolled over the walking to get around, and eventually put that ankle in, and he was able to walk for about 
he cannot hear me well. Um, he stopped working. He stopped being able to drive. He was racked with horrible chronic nerve pain and muscle spasms and lost about 50 or 60 pounds unexplainably. <clears throat> These three years were exhausting for us. The experts had no answers. Two of the neurologists told me that nothing was wrong with my husband and that it was a psychological problem. A psychiatrist told us that he was experiencing toxic mental effects from the high dose and combination of medications that the neurologists were putting him on. So even the doctors kept giving us a back and forth runaround. But we persisted. We knew something was wrong. And we knew that just because no one had found out what was wrong with him so far didn't mean that they wouldn't. So we never gave up looking for an answer. By the end of this three years, Mark was really depressed. He spent about 85% of his time in bed. He hurt all the time. He slowly was losing connection with friends and family because he just didn't want to talk about it. And in January 2018, Mark met his eighth neurologist during our two and a half week stay at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, the place everyone goes to to find an answer. And during that stay, <clears throat> we learned very quickly that they did find an answer for Mark, but not exactly a diagnosis. So they determined that Mark had a demyelinating disease, essentially meaning that his immune system was triggering his own body to destroy the myelin sheath coating nearly every surface of his central nervous system. He had damage to his optic nerves, his brain, and the entire length of his sp spinal cord had damage. However, he didn't meet the criteria for any known demyelinating disease. The most common one, which is MS. So they were just gonna send us home and connect us with the Neurological Center at Northwestern, which is his medical team now, and they were gonna help us determine the next best steps. This period of time was really exciting for me because I felt like we had finally found an answer and for, I was really uplifted by this. Unfortunately, Mark was not. Um, at this point, I think he was still holding on to hope that they would find something wrong with him that someone could go fix or that someone could heal and there'd be an end to it. And so I felt so excited that we could go attack this and figure out what to do next. And Mark felt very deflated and disappointed because he didn't know what that meant for him and for the rest of his life. So that whole year, we settled on a new medical team and they started him on a new transition, a new medication. Um, they transitioned him into a power wheelchair. He spent three weeks doing inpatient rehab, and they finally settled on giving him the diagnosis of PPMS, which is primary progressive multiple sclerosis. Only about 10% of MSers have this type, and um, it is often more debilitating than what Mark experienced. Many uh, PPMSers have a short period of time like three years or four years or five years, and they then are unable to swallow well or unable to speak. Um, Mark is, in, is actually really fortunate that he's had only so much disability, and then now he's been pretty stable for the past three or two or three years because of the medication they have him on, which, which is really good. Um, when they transitioned Mark to his power wheelchair, we lived in a split-level house, which was not a good thing when you have a wheelchair. So we started making preparations to put our house on the market and move into a flat house so Mark, Mark could get around and, and we could figure out how to go on with our lives. At that time, uh, that was the beginning of 2019. On May 3rd of that year, Mark unfortunately had a, a medical crisis. He, my stepdad was picking him up to take him to therapy and found him unresponsive and they rushed him to the hospital and he ended up being in a coma for five days. And when he woke up from the coma, nobody knew what to do with him. Nobody knew why he was in a coma. So they transitioned him to hospice. So he ended up staying in Journey Care Hospice in Barrington for three weeks. And during those three weeks, he miraculously got better every day. He started... Um, 
his body started managing its own body temperature a little better. His pupils started dilating normally. All good signs that his brain was healing. After three weeks, they transitioned him to home hospice care, and he stayed on home hospice care for six months. And at the end of that time, they went, you know, hey, you don't need to be on hospice anymore, which is rare, but great news. Um, so he started having a CNA come to the house twice a week to help support him. And that's what we do now. That is where he gets most of his support from, from his caregiver. <clears throat> During those six months where he was at home in hospice, we sold our house, bought a new house in downtown Crystal Lake, went through six weeks of construction so that our house would be totally wheelchair accessible. And for the first time in years, Mark was totally independent. He could, we have, he has this amazing ramp. He could leave the house. He can get in himself. We have this huge wheelchair friendly bathroom. He had total independence. We finished all of that in February of 2020, right before COVID. So that, you know, put a little wrinkle in our, our plans for our new exciting, you know, life, life is good future. Um, but it's okay. So that's kind of a, a summary of, of our journey. It, uh, you know, Mark's atypical onset of disease made it really difficult and really challenging all along. But now we're in a pretty stable place with his health. Um, it's been really hard, like excruciatingly difficult hard. Um, but it's also brought us a lot of blessings. And I think our practice at the temple has really helped us to be able to see through that there's always good things in everything that happens to us. So we are crystal clear about what is important to us. Like that is an amazing level of peace. Like we just know what's important to us and we don't mess around with the stuff that's not important to us anymore. When you have a really big need, beautiful people are constantly in and out of your life. Family and friends and doctors and nurses, therapists, even complete strangers. An overwhelming amount of thoughtful and kind people. This is one of the biggest profound changes that I've noticed in our daily lives is before Mark was in a wheelchair, you went to the grocery store and you went to the movies and people just kind of ignored you. We don't always make eye contact with people, <laughs> don't always smile, but everyone is nice to Mark. Everyone holds the door open for him and stops and talks to him. It's allowed this really authentic human connection that we just didn't have before. And, and, and it's, it's amazingly great. We're so grateful to have it. And as human beings, it's really enriched our lives. I don't know why horrible things like this have to happen to you to reach that place. <laughs> I wish it was otherwise, but for us, that's been one of the beautiful side effects. Our life is inescapably very raw. Only those that live so close to disease and disability know this. There's a lot of crying, a lot of heartfelt discussions, a lot of deep discussions, a lot of searching for patience and more patience and being even more patient than you think you can be. But there's a lot of opportunities to really love and care for each other. There's a lot of room in our lives for compassion and empathy, a lot of room to practice accepting people just as they are. And before Mark was sick, we had days, maybe even weeks or months, where we just coasted along and we lived our lives. We slept, we worked, we ate, we hung out. We were really casual and carefree, and we didn't really think very much about appreciating those things. And we don't get to have days like that anymore. Mark's disease isn't casual and carefree. It requires a lot of planning and constant check-ins, doctor's appointments, medicine. Being sick and managing life in a wheelchair is a lot of work. And unfortunately, we've learned that our medical systems in the United States do not do a great job of supporting families like us. It's a struggle. And if you cannot self-advocate, you just get lost in the shuffle. Nobody is out there. Even, even your favorite doctor is not advocating for you. It's just not the way it works. So some days, I think that this is the part that is actually the most difficult for us. Losing that spontaneous ability to just be carefree and just to have a casual vibe because that's how we really enjoyed living our lives. Um, I find personally that it's really difficult to separate myself from that because it's a part of me, but it's not all the parts of me. So my personal 
struggle with my practice has been, how do I have all these things in my life, but not let it become all of my life? How can I let it live in a part of me and not overtake other things? So when Mark was first diagnosed at the Mayo Clinic, a nurse encouraged us to go to counseling and encouraged us to really seek out things that would help support us and help support our mental health because that's such a big part of anyone being sick. So here's the two scary statistics that they told us. When one spouse is severely disabled, up to 75% of marriages end in divorce because 75% of those spouses say, I can't do this, this is too hard, I can't do this anymore. And the number one cause of death for people who have spinal cord injury and disease is suicide because living that way is so difficult. So Mark and I decided that we don't want to be one of those statistics. So we just work every day to be aware of how we could live as authentically as we can and as normally as we can. So I, I sometimes tell people when I'm being a little dramatic, Tess and I were just talking about this a little bit, like the triple gem literally has saved us. I mean, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, everything ab about the Blue Lotus Temple and everything about Buddhism has helped us be who we are today without all of the monastics and all of our friends and just the general support of the temple. We, we literally wouldn't be in the place we are today where every day we seek gratitude and joy and every day we feel really thankful for the gifts that we've been given. So giving Mark the best quality of life, while we can find a healthy balance for us is our goal. So this is impossible most days and every day we just get up and we try again. Mark struggles with a lot of chronic pain from nerve damage and severe spasticity and muscle spasms. And that's a whole other conversation that I won't get into, but finding a way to experience life and joy through pain is, I can't imagine anything, a bigger struggle than that. Losing his mobility is not the worst part of his disability. Living with pain is by far the worst part of his disability. And everyone with MS doesn't have pain, so um, it's not inherent within the disease. So I always say that we're just making lemonade. Every day we're going to get some lemons, someday one, sometimes a whole big bowl, <laughs> and we're just going to keep making lemonade every day. And every day we get a do-over. And as long as we keep that fresh approach that every day we get a do-over, then you get to find a smile today. You don't have to, you know, carry the baggage from yesterday or last week or, or difficult years. So we work really hard on a few things that we think have really helped us. And so the few things that we think are most helpful to us are not attaching ourselves to how we want our life to be. Whatever idea, whatever dream we had in our head of how we wanted our life to be, we cannot be attached to that anymore because it's gone. We cannot resist the way that things are. Life is what it has given us, and the more we resist it, the more we struggle and the more we suffer. And lastly, we want to choose conscious joy. We don't want to wait around for joy and happiness to come up because, you know, there's a party or it's someone's birthday or Christmas is coming. We want to find a way to consciously choose that in our life every day so that we can find it. So, um, so I'll talk about those three things just a little bit. So not attaching ourselves. So this is a core Buddhist principle for anyone who studied Buddhism. Um, super hard to achieve. I think we suck at it a lot. <laughs> um, but, we, but we keep trying. Um, we're aware of its importance. Um, so we just have had to redefine our life, right? Like as, as a couple, we had to take everything apart and then put it all back together in a new way that still honored me as an able-bodied person and still honored Mark and honors Arwen because she gets to live in the household with us and everyone else in our family. Like, how do we do that right? So 
it has all started, I think, for us with Mark figuring out who he is and what gives his life meaning. You know, he had to figure out a new way to be a dad to Arwen and be a husband to me and be a son and a good friend. Um, and that's a really vulnerable place for him. I think that that's something he really struggles with still figuring out how do I, how do I do that? You know, I have a new friend and when they come over, I have to ask them to like get something out of the fridge for me. And that feels kind of awkward or weird because they may not have known I was going to ask them to do that. But if he just is authentic, he finds that people respond authentically, which is usually good. Um, I decided early on, I just didn't want to be resentful. So I work really hard to let go of feelings of resentment. And I look for contentment with what I have. I look to find gratitude and joy. And I'm rarely disappointed. Usually if I intentionally look for it, I find that it's there somewhere. Um, again, it's, this is a real daily challenge for us still. Mark can't go do the things he wants to do. Because of his disability and all of the things that come along with us, you know, Arwen and I want to go downtown to a concert, or we want to go all day to an arts and craft fair, or tonight we're going to the drive-in movies. We want to go do stuff. But if we go, you feel a little guilty that Mark can't come with and do that stuff. And he feels a little jealous that he can't go along. And so we've decided that we can't change those feelings. Those feelings are all still going to crop up. We just don't want, we just are going to choose not to own them. We're going to constantly work not to feel guilty and not to feel jealous so that Arwen can go live her life and I can go live my life and Mark can live his life. And we try to choose things to do whenever possible that we can all do together, which is always slightly altered so that Mark can, can participate. But then sometimes we go, sorry, we're going to go do stuff you can't do. And really like owning that, that, you know, kind of a lot of negative emotions surface up but that it's okay for us to look at that emotion and go, I don't really want to feel jealous or I don't want to feel guilty. So it's okay for me to let that go. We, we practice that a lot. Most of the time we're good at it. Not always. Negative feelings still crop up. Um, but it's, it's given us, I think, a lot of peace to own that and talk about it openly in our household. Um, not resisting. So, you know, there's just no way around it. It's hard not to resist stuff. Um, our life is tedious sometimes. It requires extensive planning and lots of medical equipment. My sister lives about seven minutes away. And to go visit her, I have to bring two portable ramps and often a, a, a rollator or a walker. And so I can just complain about carrying around, you know, 75 pounds of ramps, or I could feel, wow, I'm so glad that because of these ramps, I can get into my sister's house and Mark can go participate in family events. So we just keep trying to choose being appreciative. Um, we tried to reestablish how we labeled things. So things that you go, oh, this is so hard, or it's going to be so long, the line is so long. Mark can't use this bathroom. We have to go all the way. We just try not feeling like stuff is difficult, right? It just is. It's our normal. And because it's our normal, we don't have to attach um, a negative emotion to it. Um, we look to accept and not resist. So conscious joy. This is, um, I find this so much easier for me than Mark finds for him. So I find that I'm often finding my own joy, and then I've, I've found ways in which I can also force him uh, to, to see choosing conscious joy is a good thing. So, um, you know, a bad moment doesn't mean that a whole day is negative, right? A, a bad few weeks doesn't mean that you're in a huge slump and now, you know, life is going to be horrible. Um, it's really easy to say that joy is a choice. It's a lot harder to live it. So one story that always stands out to me um, is that when Mark was in his coma and spent three weeks, weeks inpatient in hospice care was also the last month of Arwen's eighth grade. So the last month of our eighth grade is, you know, parties and celebrations and you're winding down and you have tests to take and a big eighth grade dance. And so we worked with her school to juggle attendance and when she would be in school and when she wouldn't. And they were wonderful and gracious. And we made space for her to go to her parties and all her stuff. And the day before the big eighth grade dance, she wasn't sure that she should go. 
that she didn't really feel comfortable going because, you know, her dad was in hospice. And I said, no, like, go. Dad wants you to go do this. And no matter what else is going in our lives, we have to make room for the things that are good. We don't need to allow the bad things to shadow everything over. Happiness and sadness need to be able to exist in the same space, sometimes in the same day. And when we allow that to happen, we find that they don't cancel each other out. We find that it took a lot of practice, um, but it's something that you can consciously do. So all of this is easier said than done, right? Like we could say we don't attach, don't resist, look for joy. Not so easy to actually achieve in life. So Mark and I have talked quite a bit in the past few weeks about how we actually do this. Like what are the things that we think tangibly have really worked for us the best? So I'd like to talk a little bit about the things that we actually do that work for us. Because it really, this is all emotional work, right? This is all, how do I manage my own emotions or someone else's? And how do we, how do we do that together and communicate? So the first thing that we think works for us really well is that, um, we both have an imaginary reset button. So for us, the reset button is any time that we are having a conversation that is not going well for whatever reason. Um, Mark's central nervous system disease means that he often feels kind of agitated, either emotionally or physically, and that agitation sometimes is that um, he feels a, a little bit, uh, a little confused or uh, jumbled, he'll often say sometimes, like he knows how he feels, but then he'll feel agitated and he doesn't want to feel agitated, and then that's kind of confusing. Um, but it also means that communication is a little bit different. Um, if you are a fast, loud, long talker, like I proudly am, that means I constantly have to practice talking slower and talking at a lower volume so that it's not overwhelming for him. So when we hit the reset button, and, and this like amazingly works really well, what we're literally saying is, let's rewind and redo this. Whatever we just said to each other in, in 30 seconds or in five minutes, throw it out. Throw away your hard feelings, whatever you said. Let's do it again. And then we literally redo the conversation. So you were saying that it made you mad <laughs> when I said this to you. I apologize for that. Or, or whatever it is that you want to say. Use a different tone. Use a different words. We find that that resolves so much and allows us to have stronger communication and support for each other. Um, we also sometimes revert to texting. So we find that when we're having a conversation, again, often, you know, there's emotional stuff going on in our conversations or we're trying not to hurt each other's feelings or consider what else is going on in the world around us. If we stop the conversation in text, we find that it forces you to really carefully think about what you want to say. And then you have to do it concisely. And so, you know, Mark and I have had a huge blown up argument about hurt feelings and confusion about what we should do next. And then we'll be like, let's just go text. And then literally like in four texts, it's like, okay, I love you. This is great. Let's just do that. Like it's amazing how easily it can, it can resolve. I don't know why that works so well, but I think it's because it takes the emotion out of it. When I'm reading a text, I'm really purely um, absorbing what it's saying. I'm not looking at your body language. I'm not making eye contact with you. I'm not listening to your tone of voice. It makes it unemotional. So that's been really helpful for us. Um, the second thing is that we found that we just need to trust that everything's going to be okay. That um, every moment we've lived together, everything has been okay so far. Um, by okay, I don't mean that things will be okay. We know things are not going to be okay. It's magically not going to be how we want it to be. Okay means that we will deal with it. We will deal with it in a manner that makes it okay because we got it. We can do this together. And so having trust in that um, eliminates a lot of fear of the future and what's going to happen next. Um, third one is just keep on trying. I think that we, um, especially as Americans, we give up really easily. Or we have failures and we don't see them as opportunities. So when we try something and it doesn't work... We just throw it away and go on to the next thing. So we have found that if you diligently and, and calmly, without emotion, 
say, hey, this didn't work for us. How could we do it differently next time? And then you try it again, and you try it again, really with an open mind, really with an open spirit, that 100% of the time, we've been able to find a nice resolution. But if we give up and try something new and throw away the baby with the bathwater and try something new, then we kind of spin our wheels and we get frustrated and we get agitated and, and none of that helps us solve whatever problem is being attached to. And here's the last one, laugh. Laughter is an amazing part of our lives and we invite laughter consciously. So when times are really tough, we try not to wait around to feel better or to feel motivated or to feel energetic. Instead, we try to pick something to do that will help make us laugh. So Mark and I are big fans of movies and stand-up comedians, audiobooks, you know, short little videos, anything that can help make you laugh because it's really, really healing and it really changes your mood. It balances out all the tough stuff. So all of this takes a lot of practice. Um, it's really challenging to turn a mood from sadness and suffering, but it does work. Um, one of the stories that I always uh, think of when I've talked to people about this is Mark was once did uh, a three-week stint in rehab at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab downtown. And the first weekend that he was there, Arwen and I went down and we got a hotel room and kind of turned it into like a fun little, you know, girls weekend while dad's in the hospital. So we would visit him during the day and then went out to dinner and did like some cool Chicago things. And the first day we were there, we ate dinner in the cafeteria with Mark. And there was probably about 50, maybe 60 people there. Most of them were like families or in small groups. And, um, when we were about halfway through dinner, Arwen was like, we're being so loud and like laughing so much. And she's like, don't you think we should be more quiet, mom? And I looked around and I realized that we were genuinely like just laughing, like just being our, our goofy family selves. And every other family in the entire hospital cafeteria just was like quiet and sad. And Mark and I have talked about that a lot afterwards. Like by all means, we don't want to push our way that works on other people or expect that, that our practice would, would work for some others because maybe it wouldn't. But for us, that's what works. Like no matter where we are at or what we're doing, I think we drove the hospice center nurses crazy. I think they didn't know what to do with us because when Mark, <laughs> the first uh, three days that Mark was in hospice, I think like 16 people flew in from around the country, like his brother, his mom, Tessa remembers this. <laughs> His mom, you know, his cousins, six of his closest friends who live in other states. And then the nurses are like, what's going on? Why do you have all these people here all the day? Because we knew that people and connections with people were essential to us. And regardless of what we were going through, we needed to be surrounded by that. And everyone told stories and laughed. And Mark will look back and say, I don't know how it happened that almost dying and spending six months in hospice also was one of the greatest times in my life. Like he'll say, I've never felt so loved and supported in my whole life. So um, I don't know. So we just keep walking the path. We're just going to keep practicing, learning from our teachers, try not to be sad, try not to cry every day, <laughs> and look for joy. So thank you guys for letting me share our story with you. <laughs> I have no idea what time it is, but does anyone have any questions or anything they want to say? I've, I've seriously considered it. Yeah. Maybe someday. Maybe you could help me write that book, Jason. <laughs> yeah. Jim? It, it, Mark loves You can talk to him about it. Ask him about it, Jim. He loves it. It is really, really helpful for him.
really helpful. Yeah, it, it works everywhere. I mean, I found as we've gone through this path, and again, we already embraced Buddhist principles. Like we already, like we knew all this stuff, but we weren't challenged to use it. You know, we used it in a nice, happy way like most of us do. But then when we were challenged to use it, we had to really rethink and relearn how to do it in a different way. I found like, oh my gosh, it worked. Oh, all those difficult people at work, you could use all of this stuff on them and it works so, so well. You know, because it is, it's, it's all about emotions. It's about emotion work. And when people feel hurt or fear or uncomfortable or angry, we don't act nice to each other always. So if we can find a way to set those emotions aside and not buy into them, then it's, it's significant easy, significantly easier to, to, to make the choices we need to make. Dream? Thank you, Doreen. Yeah, do, do, when, when Mark was first undiagnosed for years, we, we, Doreen would be like, oh, I have MS and this and this, and we'd be like, oh. Like, so it was years that we didn't know that he had the same disease. I know, and I watched Mark and I knew he was And um, it was definitely divine intervention that I did. Yeah, it makes a big difference. Thank you, Doreen. I needed something to stop. Ramps are good. The um, the gentleman who who made our ramp, yeah. I mean, like, and it was raining this day. When he finished the ramp, he took a video of Mark, like, driving. Like, this is the first. I mean, honestly, Mark was, gosh, how old was Mark at the time? 45? He was 45. This is the first time he had been able to independently leave his own house in over three years. Like, I mean, uh, like, I just cried my eyes out. Like, oh, my gosh, he can leave the house. Like, he could go to the library. He could just drive onto the driveway. Like, it's so powerful. And so he took this video of Mark and his ramp. And then since I've talked to lots of people who are like, Pat shows everyone that video. He's just like, look at this ramp. Look at Mark. Like, he was so happy. Have you seen the video, Monte? Yeah. He, he's many people he's shown it to. <laughs> Yeah, he, he actually he's uh, Tyler Lukey's main oh, okay. contractor. So yeah, he was wonderful. <laughs> Thank you.